You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 15th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippie. Coming up on today's programme, dozens of people, including a United States citizen, have been released in the latest prisoner swap between Russia and Ukraine. I can't wait to see my mom, my father, everybody, and I can't wait for uh, hot showers. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get the latest. Then we'll be checking in with the team in Bloomberg for the latest business news. And we will cross over to Zurich as Switzerland and Germany adopt a new plan to combat illegal migration. Also coming up, Fernando Augusto Pacheco is with me. What can we expect on today's Global Countdown, Fernando? Hello, Marcus. Today's the big final of the Global Countdown World Cup. Who's going to win? The Netherlands, Germany, Argentina or South Korea? All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. 64 Ukrainian soldiers and a U.S. national living in Ukraine have been released in the latest prisoner swap between Russia and Ukraine. Hundreds of detainees have been freed in swaps in recent weeks. There has also been some progress on talks to resume Russian exports of a fertilizer ingredient and the extension of a grain deal. So is communication becoming better with the two countries? Joining me now from Singapore is Samir Puri, author of Russia. Russia's road to war with Ukraine and a ceasefire observer in the first Donbas war. Welcome to the program. Looking at the bigger picture in this conflict, how encouraging do you think these news about prisoner swaps are? Oh, Marcus, thank you very much for having me. I mean, all news of dialogue is good news uh, if you want to see some sort of end to this conflict. Uh, but I think there is a, a level of importance that's placed on prisoner swaps that's very different to the kind of dialogue that might actually bring the conflict to an end. But I think the very fact that the sides are talking and the very fact that there is uh, some kind of overlap in wanting to exchange some of the thousands of prisoners each side has taken is definitely a good thing. But it's also not new. And there was also a prisoner swap back in September. So I think we should see it in that context as well, Marcus. What do you think has been going on behind the scenes? As you pointed out, these are not the first prisoner swaps, but nevertheless, we're talking about reasonable numbers. Well, I think to answer that, I'll bring in a, a little bit of recent historical perspective. Uh, the first is, uh, when, when I was in Ukraine working in the first Donbass war back in 2014-15, even back then there were prisoner swaps. Because uh, even back then there were Ukrainians uh, and Russian-backed separatists and Russians being taken prisoner. So there is a history of dialogue around this issue of prisoner swaps. Uh, the second thing to, to bring us, I think, it, it give us a bit more context is that even after the full-scale invasion, 24th of February 2022, within four days, there were direct bilateral negotiations between Ukrainians and Russians. They took place in the remote region of Belarus. Now, okay, sure, these negotiations didn't go anywhere, but the fact of the matter is, despite the brutality of this invasion, Russia and Ukraine have, at various points, even this year, maintained direct contact with each other. Can you tell us more about that communication? What exactly is being discussed? So we don't know, of course, what happens behind closed doors. But what we do know with the February-March negotiations is that eventually 
well, well, we can we can we know what the Russians said was they tried to impose a victor's peace because they rather arrogantly thought that they would march to victory and, and seize Kiev. Now, of course, they didn't do that. Uh, the Turkish government then took those original com- uh, communications to a sort of a mediation that took place in Ankara. But that also didn't go anywhere either. So really what we have with these talks is just a, a continual reminder of the gap between the two sides. Put it in really simple terms. The Russians say you have to accept some loss of your territory in order for us to, to you know, make the guns cease firing. The Ukrainians say you must withdraw from all of our territory for there to be an end to the war. So there's no overlap uh, that would produce any kind of settlement as of yet, which is why your original point about the prisoner swaps is important, because for as long as there is at least some kind of cooperation, some kind of communication, albeit on something very specific, that will have to, to fill the gap until there's some kind of dialogue on how to bring this, this awful conflict uh, to some kind of end. As we mentioned already, there has been reportedly some progress on talks to resume Russian exports of fertilizer ingredients and the extension of, of, of the grain deal as well. How much more scope do you think there is for deals like this between Kiev and Moscow? Now, some people put a little bit of skepticism over the initial grain deal, which uh, was, of course, met by a Russian barrage of missiles just a few days after the Russians signed up to it, striking uh, the port city of Odessa. So that was taken as evidence that the Russians are, of course, duplicitous. And, and you know, whilst they sign an agreement, they, they just want to continue to, to punish and inflict harm on Ukraine. I understand that. But nonetheless, the grain deal was a, an accomplishment. And the UN played a role. The, the aforementioned Turkish government played a role. And also some outside mediators played a role in trying to get some kind of agreement around grain shipments. Uh, but it's really important for, for the whole world. Now, I'm joining you from Singapore, where, where I'm currently based for, for my current job. And even as far as, uh, away as where I am, uh, the impact of, of food supplies being being restricted or or somehow stopped from Ukraine is, is having an impact. So you know, th- there's global attention around this issue of facilitating grain exports. And, and again, that places, I think, a lot of onus on finding a workable way around the fact that, of course, Russia still occupies quite a lot of Ukraine's coastline, Mariupol, the city we all know from uh, the, the brutal fighting that took place earlier this year, that's a port city. Berdyansk and other places are all under Russian control. And then the further west you go, Odessa, as I mentioned, still under Ukrainian control. This is going to be a really difficult issue to thrash through when you get to some kind of settlement, is if Russia still controls some part of the coastline, how on earth do you organize uh, the exports of grain and other goods uh, from Ukraine? There is one high-profile Russian prisoner we should discuss briefly, Viktor Baut. Kremlin was specifically asking for him to be returned in a recent prisoner swap. Do we know anything more about why he seemed to be so important for Russia? Uh, I mean, so quite a few times the Russians have actually identified uh, individuals who who really they, they want to get back. And I'm actually going to, to mention one other before I mention Viktor Baut. Uh, there was a Viktor Medvedchek who was freed back in, in this big prisoner swap in September. And Viktor Medvedchek was apparently uh, the pro-Russian Ukrainian politician that the Russians might have tried to put in Zelensky's place if they'd have killed or captured Zelensky right at the start. Now, Viktor Bout, very different type of character. He's an arms dealer. And he, of course, has used his front companies to uh, sell Russian arms all around the world, uh, Eastern Europe, Africa, the Middle East, for quite a number of years. 
Now, we, we of course can't work out exactly what value the Kremlin currently places on Victor Bout, but certainly his history has been as someone who's facilitated the arms sales of, of the Russian you know, defense industry to all, all parts of the world. And as with the aforementioned Victor Medvedchek, I'm sure Victor Bout is, is seen as, as an asset to the Russian government, maybe the Russian intelligence services, and maybe there's, there's a sort of a sense of debt to, to these individuals. Uh, and just one last point on this, when Viktor Medvedchek, the politician, was, was freed in September, the Russians were happy to trade him as an individual, uh, to get him back, sorry, to trade him for dozens more Ukrainian soldiers. Not that there's an exchange rate on these individuals, but it just goes to show that the certain individuals and Russians place a much greater value on in, in getting back, perhaps to protect their own state secrets, perhaps for all sorts of other reasons. Now, in, in other news, it's, it's expected that the US will provide Ukraine with the advanced Patriot missile defense systems. We may get an announcement about that as early as today. How big of a game changer would that be? It's a big deal because the US has been calibrating the kinds of weapons it's been supplying to Ukraine to avoid uh, the sense that, uh, from the Russian perspective, it is a sort of wantonly arming Ukrainians, arming them so they can strike into Russia. I think the US is now actually much more uh, much more aware that air defense of Ukrainian cities is one of the most important things it needs to to help with, one of the most important gaps it needs to fill in Ukraine's arsenal. And the Patriot, it's not a new system. Uh, for those who, who follow these sorts of things, people might remember the Patriot uh, air defense system being used in the 1991 Gulf War. Uh, so it's not cutting edge, but its abilities uh, are very different to the Russian S-300, uh, which is uh, the Russian-made or designed S-300, which is what the Ukrainians have been primarily relying on. And the Patriot will allow for, I think, a greater percentage of incoming Russian missiles to be shot down. And that's really important because that's what we've seen is the Ukrainian uh, energy infrastructure being taken down, uh, Ukraine being plunged into darkness, Ukrainians who've suffered 10 months of invasion now being subjected in, in cities all over the country to blackouts, to, to shortages of water and everything else. What else can the Americans do? They're not going to fight in Ukraine. They have to provide uh, the equipment that Ukrainians need to try to even the odds against the, the almost relentless uh, fusillades of Russian missiles being hurled at these Ukrainian cities. Just finally, Samir, what do you expect from Russia in the coming weeks and coming months? Obviously, drone attacks on Ukraine seem to continue, but how much more is Russia actually capable of doing? That's a great question. And as we enter 2023, all we are more met with is Putin's intransigence that he will carry on with this, this brutal military operation. I think we, we will expect those, those missile attacks, as you've described, but we'll also continue to see the Russian assault on the Donetsk region city of Bakhmut, uh, close where I was based, actually, uh, when I was working in Ukraine in the first conflict. And the Russians have expended enormous amounts of effort. They've lost lots of personnel. But they see Bakhmut as the gateway city to capturing cities like Kramatorsk, Slovyansk, and therefore completing their conquest of the Donetsk region. Whether they succeed or not, who knows, and the odds are stacked against them. But I guess we will continue to see the Russian army try to take all of the Donbass, all of the Donetsk region. Perhaps at that point, Putin might be able to rest on his, his somewhat damaged laurels and say, well, well, mission accomplished in whatever language he wants to say. Summer Puri there. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's almost 12.12 here in London, 7.12 a.m. in New York City. Here is our own Carlo Rebello with the day's other news headlines.
Thanks, Marcus. Taliban authorities in southern Afghanistan publicly flogged 27 people, including two women, for allegedly committing theft, adultery and other crimes. The actions have drawn international criticism and denunciation, with human rights groups demanding an immediate end to public punishment of convicts. British nurses have gone on strike, hitting already stretched hospitals and cranking up pressure on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to quell the biggest wave of industrial action to hit the country in decades. South will provide life-preserving and some urgent care, but routine services are likely to be disrupted in the biggest ever walkout by NHS nurses. Nigeria's central bank has started circulating newly designed 200, 500 and 1,000 Naira notes, today giving people until January 31st to get rid of their old notes, which will no longer be legal tender after that date. The bank has said it aims to reduce the amount of cash in circulation in order to better control liquidity, curb inflation and move towards a cashless economy. And China's economy continued to struggle in November, official data showed today, with both industrial production and retail sales missing estimates. According to the National Bureau of Statistics, industrial output rose 2.2% year-on-year, well below the expectation for 3.6%. It was also down significantly on October's 5.5% gain. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlotta. Let's get a roundup of some of the day's business stories now with Ewan Potts from Bloomberg. Good afternoon to you, Ewan. An interest rate decision from the Bank of England within the last few minutes. What did they say? Hello, Marcus. The Bank of England has just raised interest rates for a ninth time in a row to a 14-year high, taking rates in the UK to 3.5%. Now, there was talk of a four-way split on the Monetary Policy Committee. It's quite unusual for members to be uh, this disunited. There was actually a three-way split on the end. The uh, Governor, Andrew Bailey, and uh, along with six, uh, a total of six members voted for the half-point rise. Uh, two members backed leaving rates completely unchanged and uh, a further member voted for a three-quarters of a point rise. The uh, discord on the committee is really over how to react to the worst inflation in a generation. We had data this week showing that prices in the UK rose by 10.7% in the year to November. That was a slight moderation uh, from the figure we had in October. But the economy is uh, entering a recession. We had GDP. Uh, GDP is now forecast... Uh, to drop by 0.1% in the fourth quarter. That's the BOE's latest projection. So at the moment, a very shallow recession. But the danger, of course, is if if we over-tighten monetary policy, that will uh, drive the economy further into recession as we go into next year. Interesting to think about the impact of these higher interest rates. They are often portrayed as a bad thing. But of course, for some people, particularly those who rely on savings, uh, higher interest rates are a blessing. We've had 10 years of virtually zero interest rates and people's returns on savings have been uh, negligible. So, so some people will welcome these higher interest rates. But for those on uh, dropping off fixed rate mortgages, uh, it will be pretty uh, painful. But of course, uh, the majority of householders do not have mortgages. But yeah, interest rates are heading higher in the UK. Also the case in the US, we had those interest rate decisions from the world's most important central bank yesterday, increasing rates in the US to a target range of between four and a quarter and four and a half percent. The Fed just tempering some of their hikes. They have been hiking by three quarters of a percentage point. Uh, the US interest rates rose by half a percentage point. So they're starting to slow down the pace of interest rate rises in the US. You and you also have an economic update from the other side of the world for us. Yeah, employment in Australia surged by more than three times economists' estimates in November, just illustrating the strength of the Australian labour market. 
unemployment holding near a 50-year low. Now, this really bolstering the case for the Federal Reserve Bank of Australia to carry on raising interest rates as we head into next year. The Australian economy added 64,000 jobs last month, trumping forecasts for a gain of 19,000. Unemployment uh, staying down at 3.4%. The picture in Australia really quite similar to the picture in a number of other uh, Western economies that uh, the labour market, despite interest rates rising, remaining very strong. Plenty of jobs and plenty of wage growth. Now, that is a problem for the Reserve Bank of Australia. Uh, wages rising uh, adds to the uh, inflation dangers, but a pretty healthy uh, picture if you're looking for a job in Australia. Ewan Potts from Bloomberg, thank you very much. It's 12.16 here in London. You are with The Briefing. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. Monocle offers something that you won't find elsewhere. A truly international perspective and unrivaled insights into business, culture, design and more. A present that lasts all year, bringing big ideas, stories of opportunity and plenty of optimism direct to your door. When you subscribe, you'll get a 10% discount in our shops and online. And of course, a free limited edition tote bag. As well as 10 issues of the magazine, you'll receive our annual specials and access to our exclusive digital travel guides. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. You are back with the briefing on Monocle 24. I am Markus Hippi. Switzerland and Germany have agreed on a new action plan to fight illegal migration and criminal smuggling networks. Oliver Stribus is a professor of political science at the University of Zurich and he joins me on the line now. Good afternoon to you. Could you tell us more about this plan? What exactly has been agreed? Yeah, so it's, a, it's right, quite a general agreement, but it has some specific uh, content, which is basically that Switzerland has to better control who is uh, passing through Switzerland. So it's mostly about uh, transit migration, people coming or from Italy or Austria via Switzerland to Germany. And and how 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 strict has Switzerland been in the past? How much actual control has there been? Um, not at all um, strict. So basically, the Swiss television <laughs> um, filmed some migrants that passed through Switzerland, and basically, uh, the Swiss were helping them um, arriving in Germany. So they were not very strict. It's also not so clear how strict they are allowed to be, but they are allowed to be stricter than they were so far. And Germany very much insisted that. Switzerland would control more their trains mostly um, and control these people and register them. How much pressure has there been coming from Berlin then on Zurich for, for or, or on, on Switzerland for that country to actually be, have, have some strict control over migrants? 
Yeah, I think um, pressure was quite strong. And uh, Switzerland has a, a strong interest that Germany also defends its interests for a tough stance towards Mediterranean countries um, in the EU regarding migration politics. So I think it's the combination of, of rather strong pressure from Germany and, and strong interest of Switzerland to have good relations with Germany also uh, with regards to migration politics. How pressing has this issue been in Germany and Switzerland? When you follow the international media, it, it quite often seems to be the UK and Mediterranean nations that are most troubled by irregular migration. Uh, I mean, more general, asylum and irregular migration is a huge issue both in Germany and Switzerland, right? But so this specific topic about Switzerland not being tough enough on uh, on people that um, that travel through Switzerland or, or migrants that travel through Switzerland is, is quite recent, I would say. So there was a, an outcry from the opposition in Germany, and this is actually what um, what increased the pressure. But I think this is, is rather recent. So what is going to be happening next? Do we know actually what, what Switzerland is going to do next? Right. So, yes. So Switzerland uh, agreed that together with Germany, they would control um, the, the trains um, and well, interview migrants and try to register them in Switzerland, also to be more systematic in controlling at the, at the borders without closing the borders. Um, so there were some specific, quite specific agreements on, on that side, yes. How controversial has the, this issue been in Switzerland? Not that controversial. I think in general it's, it's all quite technical. And, um, I mean, there was Neue Zürcher Zeitung, so the large... Uh, yeah, now pretty anti-immigrant newspaper that commented basically that this was only in the interest of Germany and that Germany should better uh, be more tough on migration in general rather than uh, pointing to Switzerland. But for the rest, I haven't seen so much. How big of an issue is this for Switzerland itself when we talk about irregular migration and illegal migrants? Do any of them actually stay in Switzerland or hope to stay at least? Or do they all just continue, for example, to Germany? No, they, they do stay. It's a huge issue in Switzerland. Um, I mean, the electoral support of the largest Swiss party, Swiss People's Party, to a large extent, is based on on its criticism on asylum policy. Um, so it's a huge issue in Switzerland. And um, there are many um, asylum seekers in Switzerland also. It's, it's a similar share as in Germany, actually. And and just finally, how do you think this this deal will play out between Germany and Switzerland? Do you think there may be more requests coming from the direction of Berlin? No, don't think too much. I mean, Switzerland basically gave in here, and I guess uh, the Germans will be happy with this solution. There's not so much more Switzerland can do within the current uh, contracts with the Dublin system. Um, I think what will be interesting is we, we will uh, have a change in who is um, Minister of Migration in Switzerland. And um, so far, the minister was, was rather, um, well, well, was in favor of, of being tough on migration. And uh, there might be some change now in, in what's coming. What do you expect? Um, well, I mean, in general, the, the government, Swiss government remained uh, center-right. Um, but he probably was one of the tougher <clears throat> ministers we had so far, so maybe we'll relax a little bit. 
Oliver, thank you very much for your insight. That was Oliver Striebes, Professor of Political Science at the University of Zurich. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. And finally on today's show, it's time for this week's edition of The Global Countdown with our own Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Fernando, today is the day many of us have been waiting for. For the last few weeks, we have been running a special World Cup version of this segment. Shall we recap the rules again? Absolutely. So uh, I was mimicking the World Cup groups, but instead of looking at football, I was looking at their number one song from a local artist. It's been an arduous process, Marcus, but here we go. This is the big final. There are four countries in it. It's the Netherlands, Germany, Argentina and South Korea, which I have to say is a very good mix. They really did their best when it comes to music, but there's mm. only one winner. Exactly. Do you want to say anything else before we start this countdown, as you do in, in, in song competitions like in Eurovision? Can you, do you want to talk about how hard it's been to, has, it's been to choose these winners and it's so been, forth? It's been hard. I mean, some countries actually was really hard to find actually a local artist because it was dominated by artists from another nation. Uh, but, you know, even looking at the list, you know, it doesn't matter the size of the country. I think some, of course, we have South Korea here is a major player in the pop market worldwide. But some surprises. I mean, who would have guessed that Dutch pop is so creative and interesting week by week as well so I, I love that I discovered a lot of things during this process Marcus me too so now we have four finalists left shall we start with the actual business absolutely we start with the Netherlands and he's kind of a, a young artist he just won a competition in the Netherlands called Are You Next it's kind of a reality show and this song was produced by top uh, you know Dutch producers as well. He's got a very interesting story, Claude. He's, he's Dutch, uh, but he was originally from Congo. He moved uh, to the country when he was, uh, I believe, 15 years old. Uh, and this song that we're going to hear, it's a mix of Dutch and French as well. Uh, this is Claude with La Dada. <laughs> La da 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 La da 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 La da 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 La da da At least that's an easy song title to remember. It's easy, but it, it, I think it's it's great as well, uh, Claude. And he's been compared. He, some people are saying that he's the Dutch Stromae, mm -hmm. the very uh, the iconic, uh, you know, Belgian uh, singer. And what I like about the Netherlands as well, Marcus. I mean, of course, they've been through the semi-finals and here and there. All the other number ones were excellent as well, so they've been proved to be very consistent. Some electropop, some ballads, some dance. So well done, the Netherlands, you know, a very good entry for the very small European nation. A winner it. already, shall we say. Who knows, who exactly. knows. Exactly. Well, we continue with another another country from our top four now. Absolutely. It's Germany. And, and, and again, they've been having some very interesting number ones, but... This one is, is, is very interesting. It's a very kind of local German phenomena in a way. Uh, I don't think many people outside Germany know him. It's 24 Tim. He's a TikTok influencer. So he used to talk to kids about all sorts of things. But then this is the year he decided to be a pop star. And he was number one with his first single, Bling Bling. And then he got a second number one. And now this is only his third single and third number one song as well. 
I think we should have a listen. So you have the vibe. I mean, what this uh, young man from Cologne uh, is. It's 2014 with Galac Galaxy. I have to say that I think German dance music hasn't really evolved that much since my university days. I mean, it is connecting to the public. It's a really interesting, and he's going on tour on several German cities uh, next year. So that's, again, it's, it's a surprise number one uh, for Germany there. But Marcos, actually, our next country is actually the only country that has a chance to win the real world. Cup. That was the point I wanted to oh, make, Fernando, so sorry. because I was doing my research as well. Argentina is here. Argentina is here. And Argentina has been having a fabulous kind of music renaissance. Uh, a lot of young rappers are coming from there as well. We have uh, Bizarre Bizarre rap as well, but this song has been number one since I actually started the Global Countdown World Cup. Because of course, some countries there's a number one every week. But I think in Argentina, La Joaquín, uh, a young uh, rapper, she's doing so well. I mean, and she has many other songs actually in in the in the Argentinian charts. But this, it's been the hit of the summer, I may say, right there in the southern hemisphere. Uh, but let's have a listen, La Joaquín, Dos Besitos. Que le ato, yo soy tu romántica, tu bandolera. Tengo la técnica para comerme la entera. Mami, te pa la TV más linda. Fotito para lista, fuera para la pista. Dale que la corosa está lista, tremendo cu, qué buena vista. Esa cara de maldita, cuando te pones loquita, tremendo cu, qué buena vista. Right, right. Fernando, do you want to tell us what this this song is all about? It well, dos besitos is two little kisses. It's it's kind of a fun, a party track, you know. In the video, she's like walking through like a local fun fair, you know, with her friends. So I think it's kind of uh, irreverent, mm. um, if I may say. I really, I really like it. Actually, I feel very young and happy listening to this. Well, we have one song left, Fernando, in this top four of finalists. A completely different uh, tone uh, tone change here. It's a song from South Korea. And again, this has been a surprising number one for South Korea, I have to say. This song took like eight months to reach the top levels of the charts. Uh, of course, it became viral on social media. And one of the reasons uh, for the success is that the singer for the song, Yungha, she decided to perform at local campuses across South Korea. So it's kind of a word-of-mouth kind of type of success. Very grassroots approach into finding success. Very grassroots and, and a beautiful ballad. And again, we've just heard some up-tempo songs, but this is a little bit kind of slower. Uh, Jungha with Event Horizon. <laughs> Those were the four tracks, four countries we have now in the in the finalists, in a final round, top four. It's time for the results, Marcus. Exactly. I'll start from the bottom, okay? Who is number four? I'll tell you. Germany. Well done, but, you know, 
it's Why? not the best. It's not the best <laughs> song, but it's it's great. It's a great local phenomenon. We love local uh, artists there. Number three. Oh, we uh, we should do a countdown. We still have Netherlands left. We have Argentina left and South Korea left. Yes. And number three, Marcus, it's South Korea. Well done for being one of the most exciting music markets in the world. But perhaps it's a little bit of a slower track. Mm. I think they have other excellent tunes in there. It's a well-deserved number three. And your reason for that was simply that it just wasn't good enough again. It's not good enough as the, our top two. Our top two is very strong, Marcus, and it's been a very hard decision for me to make because it could have been either country, actually, at the top, but, you know... So now we have two countries left. Yes. Uh, well, I've got to be honest. At number two, we're going to Argentina. <sighs> it's It almost reached number one. But, you know, well done. They might win the World Cup. Exactly. I Fair mean, they, they are the runner-ups here at the Global Countdown World Cup. But I think the number one country, Marcus, it surprised me. The diversity, uh, the different mix of genres as well. It's very exciting to see just a 19-year-old topping the charts with a very catchy song. And as all the newspapers are saying, he could be the new big star in the Netherlands. And I like that as well. So it's Claude who won the final. Absolutely. And Marcus, if I may say, do you think of time to play a little bit more of Claude? I think we should finish this segment with a bit of Claude from the Netherlands, the winner of this World Cup version of the Global Countdown. Congratulations to the Netherlands. Thank you, Val. Maybe one of those songs 2022 will be remembered for Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Thank you very much for joining us today. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb. Our researcher was Emily Sanderson. Our studio manager was Kellen McLean. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday here in London, 7am in Washington, D.C. I am Marcus Hippie. Goodbye and thanks for listening.